First Thessalonians chapter four, beginning in verse one, Paul writes, finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For, you know, what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit. Throughout the New Testament, the life of the Christian is described like a walk. And Paul will repeatedly use the phrase. He'll use it over and over again in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Our walk is contrasted with others in the world. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, walk not as the other Gentiles walk. We're to walk in love, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. We're to walk as children of light, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. And so your Christian life begins with a step of faith. And that step of faith leads to a walk of faith. As a matter of fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. The very metaphor of walking suggests motion and progress. And the person who cannot walk is conspicuous by his or her lack of strength. That's why we say they're unable to walk. Moses wrote, as your days, so shall your strength be. And so now Paul describes a course of action, a way to walk. And that walk includes a life of personal purity and holiness. It was Jerry Bridges who wrote, to be holy is to be morally blameless. It is to be separated from sin and therefore consecrated to God. The word signifies separation to God and the conduct befitting those who are separated. And there's the rub. How are we to live morally blameless lives? We live in a culture and a society. Clearly, we're not just young people, but people of every age face overwhelming temptations, binge drinking, legal and illegal drugs. I was in Kohl's the other day looking for a teapot and I smelled the familiar fragrance of medical marijuana. And I thought. The world continues to get worse and worse. There's instant access to porn. Each and every person with a computer is only two clicks away from graphic, unedited sex and violence and materialism. And so Paul's plea in this section is for personal and moral purity. And one of the things that Paul doesn't do is he doesn't mince words. And he doesn't use coy language. The instructions are direct and they are serious and they are clear. Paul is willing to pierce the darkness. He's willing to penetrate the moral fog and the cultural ambiguity and take a stand. The Lord wants us to be holy people. 
and the moral climate in the Roman Empire in the first century was very, very much like our own. There were pockets of decency, but sexual promiscuity was available to all. And the reason why it was available to all with the proliferation of slavery, one out of every three human beings in the Roman culture was a slave. And so there were sexual surrogates everywhere. It wasn't just access to prostitution or porn. It was physical reality. And the Christian message of personal holiness and sexual purity was one that dropped on the culture like a bombshell. What? What are you saying? Chuck Colson writes, quote, holiness is the everyday business of every Christian. It evidences itself in the decisions that we make and the things that we do hour by hour and day by day. And Paul knew, Paul knew that the Gentiles and the pagans would not embrace a message of personal purity and holiness. And so the message, listen carefully to me. The message wasn't addressed to pagans. And Gentiles, but to Christians in second Corinthians chapter five, he said the Christian is a new creation. Behold, every person who is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so Paul pleads and passionately prescribes a remedy and instruction and direction for those who would live godly lives in Christ Jesus. And Paul lists reasons. And on the list, it includes the pleasure that it provides God in verse 1. And then the privilege of obeying God in verse 2 and 3. And then the glory that it brings to God in verses 4 and 5. And the reality that this is the way that we escape the judgment of God for impurity and immorality in verses 6 through 8. And so it begins... In verse 1, he says, finally, then, brethren, the reason why he says finally is he's drawing the reader's attention back to chapter 1 and back to chapter 2 and back to chapter 3. Remember, the, the, the church at Thessalonica was young and under pressure. There was so much pain and there was so much persecution. They were bombarded from without, and then they were troubled within. By the way, one of the principles of biblical hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is the science and art of biblical interpretation. Hermeneutics is your ability to look at the passage and understand the passage and interpret the passage. And one of the very, very, very first principles of biblical hermeneutics is the passage cannot mean what it never meant. I have to repeat it. The passage cannot mean what it never meant. The passage was never an excuse to continue in sin and personal impropriety. As a matter of fact, Paul exhorts the brethren. He urges the brethren not to be lazy or passive in their Christian walk. Paul is exhorting the reader to actively, personally pursue purity and holiness and obedience to the divine command that's given in the Scripture. Chuck Swindoll writes, this means that we must commit ourselves to submit rather than ignore or revolt against God's standard of holiness. And he cites Romans 6, 16 and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And then he continues, it also involves our commitment to diligently work through a process that is sometimes difficult and painful, yet fruitful and rewarding. And the reason why he does that is he calls the Christian to participate in the plan and the purpose that God has for you. Believe it or not, your life is an exercise in pleasure. You were created by God to give God glory and to give God pleasure. And make no mistake about it, 
Make no mistake about it. Each and every person without exception lives to give pleasure to God or to themselves or to others. But make no mistake about it. Each and every person is indulging in an exercise in pleasure. You're living to please someone or something. Most people live to please themselves. And I wish I could say that most Christians do not live to please themselves, but I would be lying to you. And as your pastor, I have an obligation to tell you the truth. And the truth is, most Christians do not live to please God. They live to please themselves. And so, first of all, we have to cultivate the ability to discern and recognize clearly to see the needs of others. But even that can become a a problem because we don't exist primarily either to please ourselves or to please anyone else. Now, is it possible to please oneself, please others and honor God? And I think that the answer is yes, but it is also possible to please yourself, please others, and at the same time dishonor God. And that's why it takes discernment. In our walk, we can serve others and still remain in love and loyal to Jesus Christ. Paul writes, quote, For if I yet pleased man, I should not be the servant of Christ. That's what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. As a matter of fact, if you turn the page of your Bible and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul writes about his ministry attitude. He says, quote, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. In other words, it's the Lord God who examines our circumstances in order to determine whether or not what we're saying and doing is appropriate. And so in verse 2 it says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when you ask and answer this question, what response do you come up with? What is your major motive in living? Go ahead and answer the question to yourself. What is the major motive of your life? Is it to please God? Is it to honor God? Is it to please yourself? The Bible tells us that Enoch walked with God. It says, and that Enoch had this testimony that he pleased God. That's what it says in Hebrews 11:5. Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. It says in John chapter 8, verse 29, is it possible to know God's will and to do God's will and to still not please God? The answer is yes, because you can know what's right. And you can even want to do what's right. You can even finally actually do what's right. But in your heart, you haven't changed. Let me give you an example. There was a six-year-old child who was particularly naughty. And so mother and dad sent her to the corner of, of, the, uh, of the room. And said, you need to sit down in your thinking chair. And she continued to stand. You need to sit down. She continued to stand. And then the parents began to outline exactly what would happen if she continued to stand. And under threat of judgment, she firmly placed herself in the seat. She folded her arms and she said, I may be sitting down right now, but in my heart, I'm standing up. Now, you laugh because you know that that's a really good description of you and of me. We can, under strict orders and threat of punishment, do what we think is the right thing to do, but our heart hasn't been changed. Because our heart doesn't necessarily seek to please God. 
When Paul writes, for you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, the word translated commandments is a very interesting word. It's the word parangalia. It meant instructions, but it had carried with it the idea of the full instruction or complete instruction. Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy chapter 5, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5 and 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18 to refer to the whole council or all the practical teaching of Christianity, Paul means the rules of living or the precepts which Paul and the others had earlier brought to the believer's attention in the world of first century Rome. This was a word that was a military word. It was used in the Roman military to describe orders that were handed down by a superior officer to the inferior officers, if you will, and to the line troops, it was, were, it was, it was the marching orders and mission. As a matter of fact, in that world, you were given a mission and you were given orders, but in that world also, every army that had a chance of even remotely winning the battle would have to be outfitted for the war. Don't you think the most stupid thing in the world is to order an army to do something that they cannot accomplish? You have to supply them. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He is reminding us that we have been given orders in the chain of command. We are servants in God's household. We are soldiers in God's army. Paul wrote, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, in, in what was perhaps his dying words, he wrote, No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. And it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to take your eyes and your heart off the mission. Jesus after he rose from the dead and was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he told his disciples to go to all people everywhere and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So it was the set of instructions in order to accomplish the plan, but also to ensure your maturity. And so in verse 3, Paul writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, this becomes an important point, particularly if you're an unbeliever or a non believer or a make believer, because this is a nonsensical statement. The unbeliever cannot be involved in the process of sanctification because there's something that precedes sanctification and it's called justification. Justification is the idea that you hear the gospel, you hear the story of Jesus, you understand that Jesus came and died for your sins and rose from the dead. When you enter into a right friendship and relationship with God because you are connected to God through Jesus and you are connected to God through the Holy Spirit, the process of sanctification begins to take place. And remember what sanctification is. It is the journey that each and every believer takes as they become conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so... For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Paul is basically saying, do you want to grow up? Do you want to mature? Do you want to advance in your Christian walk? Now, everybody who's ever been a parent, Anyone who's ever been a mom or a dad who's had a two-year-old child, you look at your child and you might let innocently something slip out. Oh, honey, I hope you never grow up. And then when they turn 13, when are you going to grow up? We say, I don't want you to grow up, but we really don't mean it. As a matter of fact, there's something wrong with a child 
who at the age of 13 acts like they're two years old. Or a child who at the age of 14 acts like a two-year-old. Or at the age of 20 acts like a two-year-old. Or at the age of 30 acts like a two-year-old. All of a sudden the monstrosity of refusing to grow up becomes terrifying. Paul is saying, maturity is linked to purity. And so the Christian who characterized himself or herself as mature in Christ is playing a game and exercising a lie if their life isn't marked by personal purity. Do you want to grow up? Then you're going to have to learn to deal with sexual temptation and sexual sin. Maturity is more than just simply abstinence from the improper sexual activity. It's a purity of mind and a purity of heart, which leads to a purity of body, increasing maturity, growing wisdom, goodwill, resilience, creativity. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, and he said, keep yourself pure. And so, in verse 3, when he says abstain from sexual immorality, the word sexual immorality means all and every form of sexual contact outside of marriage. Remember what I said to you earlier? The text cannot mean what it never meant. Abstaining from sexual immorality can't mean embrace sexual immorality, walk in sexual immorality, continue in sexual immorality. This means bigamy, polygamy, homosexuality, sodomy, prostitution, all forms of premarital, extramarital, non-monogamous marital sex are, listen carefully, wrong, wrong Wrong. Why is such sexual contact wrong? Somebody might say, well, maybe it's because of communicable diseases. Maybe it's because Paul doesn't want him to become unhealthy or unwise or dangerous. And so if you can eliminate communicable diseases, well, maybe that would make it right. No, 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 no. God is forbidding all of this because it violates his holy nature and his holy will for his holy people. The basis of the prohibition begins in the very nature and character of God. And listen carefully. We live in a culture and a society that reads the words abstain from sexual immorality and for some reason they embrace sexual immorality. And, and here's the reason that Paul begins with sexual immorality does not honor God. It does not please God. That's where it begins. When a parent or a preacher or a pundit says, hey, guess what? Young people avoid premarital sex and the culture laughs out loud. <laughs> You're kidding, right? No. The Bible prohibits, forbids sexual contact apart from marriage. The culture cries, how dare you rob us of our joy? How dare you? And Paul's prohibition is not to prevent you or robbing you of your joy, but to ensure your joy. When the Bible commands abstain from sexual immorality, do not commit adultery. It's not building a prison fence around your marriage, but a protective wall to keep your garden safe. But we live in a culture and we live in a society that keeps trying to scale the wall. Destroy the wall, tear down the wall. And this is not something you have to pray about or you need to do further research on or consider the cultural, the social or the scientific implications. You don't have to pray. Well, Lord, should I 
stop the sexual contact with my girlfriend, with my boyfriend, with my boss, with this, with that, with this or that. No, no, no. It means wrong, wrong, wrong. You need to stop now. Stop right at this very moment. And it begins in your heart and in your mind. Abstaining from fornication means abstain from fornication and sexual immorality, think about it, and no amount of liberal theology, no amount of modern philosophy, no amount of homosexual lobbying, no amount of gay church pride marches, no amount of political correctness, no amount of History Channel specials are going to change the Word of God or change God's plan or change God's goal. That's why he says your sanctification. Paul is trying to tell us something. You will never become pure by remaining impure. And you won't mature. Maturity, listen carefully, spiritual maturity, listen carefully, listen carefully, spiritual maturity will never be a part of your life until personal purity becomes a part of your life. And so in verse four, it says that each, each of you, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So what does Paul mean by this? What do you mean, Paul, by vessel? Well, the most natural meaning is the physical body, your personal circumstances. This is why several translators have included learn to control his body like Phillips or learn to gain mastery over his body like in the NIV. On the other hand, competent scholars have also used expressions like Take a wife or take a husband or its equivalent. So part of the answer may lie in the meaning of the term possess, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. The word is very interesting in the original language. It's the Greek word taomei. It is a word that meant to procure for yourself or to gain for yourself or to acquire for yourself. Now, here's what we know. You don't gain or acquire a body, but you do gain or acquire a mate, a husband or a wife. And so the word vessel, skuos, is a kind of catch-all word for containers or household utensils. But clearly in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, in that context, it is used to describe a person's wife. On the other hand, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it's used to describe a human body. So what does it mean here? It may have the net effect of get a wife, get a husband. The idea being there is a biblical provision for human sexuality given in marriage. And so Paul is basically saying we need to know how to control our bodies and our sexual drives in a pure and an upright way so that we can honor God. And then in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse five, Paul clarifies, he says, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And this is this is something that becomes critical for your understanding. Look at again in verse five. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. You hear me fond of saying there are two kinds of people in the world. How, what, what are they? I know, you know, Italian people and people who wish they were. No, this time it means people who know God and people who don't know God. I mean, it really is that simple. I wish it could be more complicated, but it is not more complicated. Listen carefully. We're not to lose control of ourselves and act in passion of lust like the Gentiles. Look what it says, who do not know God. What does all of that mean? Does it shock you or surprise you that we live in a culture, in a society where the vast majority of people do not know God? Because they do not know God, they draw certain conclusions. There's no God. 
as a matter of fact, if there's no God, then there's no there's no prohibitions or or restrictions. We live in a sexualized society. We're bombarded on television, on screen and magazines and life and work with images that weaken our resolve and solicit us to immoral contact. We text, we email, we phone, we fax. We otherwise engage in conversations that have the net effect to seduce and lure and pressure and promote sexual contact. For the Christian, we must stop. Because fantasy leads to acting out. We have to abstain from sexual immorality. We have to avoid sexual sin. We do it for God's glory and we do it for our own good. But for the people who don't know God. For the people who don't believe that God created human beings. For the person who believes that really all it means to be human is you're the product of evolution. That you are hardwired for people who don't know God, for people who believe that human beings are nothing less than a biological unit, social, hardwired for sex and survival, sanctification is a silly religious word to them. You don't have to please God because there's no God to please. You don't have to obey God because there's no God to obey. You don't have to glorify God because there's no God to glorify. You don't have to worry about judgment because judgment is a Christian fiction. Unless it's all true. Unless there really is a God. If you really are the product of divine creation and specificity. If you were in fact created to give God pleasure, then it makes perfect sense that we would obey him, that we would glorify him, that we would love him. God created the sexual function and has the authority to prescribe that function. God invented marriage as a sacred union between a man and a woman. And you've got to understand something. When the Bible says, therefore, a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to the woman and the two shall become one. It is marriage is something that God invented in order to preserve and protect the family. But remember, there are people who don't know God. And for the people who don't know God, they don't believe God invented marriage. You know what they believe? They believe that the culture and the society invented marriage. And because they believe that the culture and the social construct invented marriage, then they can redefine it in order to suit their own sickness and perversion. But the Bible says God created marriage. Not only to serve mankind, but God created marriage for something else that many of us forget. Marriage was always meant to serve as an illustration of Christ and his church. It isn't simply a social construct. And it isn't simply a personal contract. It is a theological and spiritual illustration to try to communicate with you what it's like to have purity and maturity in friendship and fellowship with the true and the living God. And so then Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 6, that no one, no one, no one should take advantage and defraud his brother in this matter. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, it says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure. But marriage is not honored by all. And it is not kept pure. When Paul writes that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified in this matter means in the specific matter of the sexual immorality or sexual sin that Paul is describing. Some scholars would broaden it to be a, a euphemistic generalization for all sorts of uncleanness. 
But remember, 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 Paul is writing to a Roman and Greek culture, a sexualized society with sexual surrogates. He's writing to a group of people and he's anticipating an argument. And the argument that he's anticipating is, well, what about the person who says there's nothing wrong with immorality as long as it's carried out in the privacy of my own home? And Paul, as he anticipates that argument, says, no, that no man should transgress and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things. Paul is anticipating and understanding the common incestuous practices of the pagan people and the sexual practices with family members. And he's pointing out that this is immoral. It is wrong. It is wrong. It is wrong. And Paul is anticipating something that people he knew grew up in homes where people would take sexual advantage of each other and they would hurt each other and abuse each other wickedly and wrongly. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you think that you can get away with wickedness and immorality and sexual perversion in your own home, you are wrong because the Lord himself will avenge this injustice. And you know what? I don't think he's simply talking about Judgment Day. I don't think he's simply talking about, hey, one day you're going to die and you're going to stand before God and you're going to have to give an account of your sexual deviancy or behavior. He's basically saying, if you wickedly and immorally continue to embrace a lifestyle of immorality, make sure you understand something. Your sin is going to find you out. If it is a euphemistic generalization for all sorts of uncleanness, it's talking about the pattern of behavior that takes place in your heart and in your speech and in your lifestyle. The late Colonel Sanders, who was the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken, once said that his conversion to Christ cost him half of his vocabulary. I read an interesting statistic. The number of swear words in the vocabulary of an average American male, 58. Average American female, 29. If she works at Kmart, the number jumps to 58. No, I'm just kidding. I made that up. If you if you work at Kmart, don't write me letters. It's just there's a lot of salty language there. You know, John MacArthur writes, within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, and creative. And outside of marriage, it's ugly and destructive and damning. So the Lord has to deal with his children when they sin. And you may be a Christian. And you may be living a lifestyle of immorality and impurity. But Paul is asking you to repent. He's asking you to turn away from your sin and turn to the Savior. You know, on my radio program this last week, a person called and said, Gino, you can't tell Christians to repent of their sin. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it is true. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But you were never called to live like an unbeliever. Election is never an excuse for sin. It's always an encouragement to refrain from sin. And when King David committed adultery, he tried to cover his sin and God disciplined him severely. He eventually confessed his sin and God forgave his sin but the consequences of his sin would haunt him his whole life. Will God forgive you your sin? Yes. Is it possible to turn and embrace purity? Yes, it is. If you do it, what will happen? You will grow in grace and you will begin to walk in a direction of maturity 
God saved us. And this is why it says in verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Do you understand what's happening in verse 7? Paul is yet anticipating yet another argument. Look what it says. Read it again. For God, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but to holiness. He hears the voices. He hears the voices saying, why should I? Why should I? Why should I obey the command? Because God hasn't called us to uncleanness, but to holiness. The word hagiosmos, holiness, it occurs ten times in the Greek New Testament. Twice, it's, or five times it's translated holiness. Five times it's translated sanctification. The word has already occurred twice in this chapter in verses 3 and 4. There are other terms which refer to the state of being holy. But here it speaks of the process of becoming more and more like Christ. This is what Paul means in part. The Lord God has saved us by Jesus Christ. Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. Jesus has saved us not simply to avoid hell. But so that we would grow up. That we would mature spiritually. The Lord wants us to move out of the fog of darkness and out of the wickedness and impurity into the bright light of holiness. And our our Lord never called us to out of everlasting darkness just so that we would continue to walk in darkness. This is exactly how many of us are living this very moment. Why? Why? Why would you remain engaged in an immoral lifestyle? Why would you do it? Knowing that it's not pleasing to God. Knowing that it's not obedience to God. Knowing that it is an invitation to judgment. I know what some of you are thinking. Do you know that's your opinion? That's just your opinion. Paul anticipates that in verse 8. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject a man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying, Jesus Christ has appeared to me. The Holy Spirit lives in me. The message that I'm giving to you isn't something that I made up. In order to make life miserable for you. When he says, therefore, he who rejects this, the word reject means to refuse or to slight. It means to declare invalid or to make void or to set aside. Here, the idea being that the person who would set aside deliberately reject God's prescribed way of holy living. Isn't simply disagreeing with Paul. They're disagreeing with God. And you would think that God's word, you would think that God's command, you would think that God's pleasure, you would think that God's glory, you would think that God's judgment, you would think all of those things would be sufficient motivation to do what God wants, but it isn't true in your life. For some reason, you're still holding on to your sin. But make no mistake about it. Spiritual maturity is impossible for the person who continues to embrace impurity. You know, we could cite social statistics that a man and a woman in a healthy monogamous relationship have stronger marriages and fewer divorces, but that still wouldn't be sufficient motivation. In the Journal of Marriage and Family, Dr. Joan Kahn and Dr. Catherine London wrote, quote, among white women first married between 1965 and 1985, virgin brides were less likely to have dissolved their marriages through separation or divorce than women who had been virgins at marriage. How much less likely? The numbers are astonishing. Those who lost their virginity before marriage, 53% to 71% more likely to divorce than those who marry as virgins. Sadly, however, it writes, the percentage of women who were virgins when they married dropped from 43% in the 1960s to less than 10% today. 
That should shock you. Planned Parenthood believes the answer is more sex education in the school. A Lewis Harris poll reveals that those teens that take the sex education class have a 50% higher sexual activity rate than those who didn't even take the course. You want to know why? Because the course is heavily in favor of people who believe that there is no God. That you are just a biological creature and the subject of evolution and that it is inevitable. It's a sexual fatalism, which means that they focus on contraception. And God forbid that you should teach sexual abstinence. Yet one of the goals of abstinence-based courses is to give virgins the knowledge and the skill and the confidence to remain pure. And for those who have had sexual contact, guess what? It's not too late to embrace purity. It's not too late to turn it around. We're right on the precipice of a new year. Do you realize that every year, one million teenagers will get pregnant every year. We have no reason to doubt that this year will be any different. 13% of those teens who get pregnant have a miscarriage. What happens to the rest? In our wicked and perverse society, we encourage them to get an abortion and 407,000 do exactly that. They kill their child. And the ones who have the courage to carry their babies to term? 349,000 are unwed. Two-thirds of all African-American babies. One-fifth of all white babies born in America are born out of wedlock. And babies born out of wedlock receive a disproportionate share of welfare. They're often raised in poverty. Father absence is an important indicator of problems like juvenile crime, poor school performance, adolescent pregnancy. But you know what? For the person who doesn't care about the will of God and the glory of God and obedience to God and pleasing God, this will make no difference whatsoever. You know what is the most objectionable and outrageous thing that I'm about to say? It will probably be repeated in the news outlets. Is it so outrageous to suggest that every child needs the love and provision of his mother and father? When did that become a perverse and wicked statement? Children need a father and children need a mother. Compelling evidence demonstrates that the stable and loving two-parent home provides the healthiest environment for children and is an irreplaceable foundation for long-term social success. But guess what? Most people will still elect sexual impurity rather than sexual purity. What will you do? You may find this an odd statement, but the whole counsel of the Bible speaks more about God's holiness than his love. And you really do have two choices. You can live horizontally in the weakness of your flesh, or you can live vertically in the power of the Holy Spirit. The flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. Both are opposed to one another. So how does the Holy Spirit of God help you live free from sexual impurity? Well, to make a start, the Holy Spirit creates a holy and a pure desire. You'll want to hear God's promises. You'll want to obey God's word. The Holy Spirit helps you recall God's promises, particularly in times of temptation. And the temptation will come and you must be able to say... This is not who I am. This is not why God made me. God didn't make me to simply please myself and simply please others. God made me to provide pleasure for himself. 
and the fruit of the spirit in the life of the believer overcomes the work of the flesh. You know, this is an important point for each and every one of you who continues down this road of, of slavery. You can change. Paul devotes a great deal of time and space to it because it's of major importance. You can choose to live horizontally. You will slip. If for whatever reason you live in the flesh at the surface on the horizontal level, you're going to slip into a fog of. Immorality, uncertainty and decay. You're going to wind up ending up playing a religious game where your real life becomes increasingly polluted and corrupted and impure and godless. And you'll hate going to church. And you'll hate reading your Bible. And you'll hate fellowship with other Christians. And your disobedience will result in guilt and grief. And there's a reason. There's a reason. It's because God doesn't permit his children to traffic in rebellion and wickedness and disobedience without experiencing pain and anguish. Jesus does this for our good. So that we can share in his holiness. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, holiness is not something we're called upon to do in order that we may become something. It's something we are to do because of what we already are. He's right. God made you different, saved you, set you apart. It was D.L. Moody who said, a holy life will produce the deepest impression. Lighthouses blow no horns. They only shine. Isn't that good? You don't have to blow your horn about personal purity. Live your life. To honor Him. To glorify Him. To please Him. To obey Him. So that you'll avoid judgment. It's so hard. But I guarantee you something. The moment you turn from your sin, the moment that you elect in your heart to embrace personal purity you are going to be taking a step in the direction also of personal maturity. And that's what God wants. For you to grow up. To change. To be like Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray, I pray for every man and every woman within the sound of my voice. Lord, I pray that they would desire to love you and serve you and obey you. And Lord, for the person who's living in unrepentant sin, not in personal purity, but in personal impurity. Lord, I pray that they would pray a, a simple prayer in their heart. Heavenly Father, I want to please you. Lord, no matter how wonderful that person is, they can't give you eternal life. They can't forgive your sins. They can't reserve a space in heaven for you. Only Jesus can do that. Lord, we want to please you. We want to honor you. Lord, we pray that in our hearts and in our minds, but also in our very behavior, we would long to obey you in personal purity in order to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.